My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for uh, coming out and joining us this morning as we continue to study the book of Jonah. Um, you will notice that to my right, the baptismal is set up. Uh, we don't set it up all the time because uh, it, it is temporary and it takes up a lot of space. Uh, but when we do set it up, I like to make sure that we let you know that uh, uh, there's an opportunity. We, we do have a baptism scheduled after the 1045. Uh, and so we will be doing that, but um, I, I want to make sure that if there's anybody this morning uh, that is eligible and uh, the Spirit is leading, uh, we are willing. So I will give you some more information at the end of the service, but uh, if you are a believer in Christ and haven't been baptized, you have an opportunity this morning to follow in obedience. Uh, I'll tell you more about that. This morning we are continuing in the book of Jonah, so grab your Bibles. Let's flip over to Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, we're going over to Jonah 1, and this morning we're actually going to be uh, spending most of our time in a, in a separate passage in, in Matthew 12. Um, Matthew 12. So we're going to be going to page 774 uh, and page 814. So you're going to have to use two fingers to hold your spots for a moment. All right, so hopefully you grabbed a study book. Um, if you haven't yet, I, I would love to get one to you. Just raise your hand and we'll put one in your hands. Um, we designed this study book, and go ahead, be bold, put it up, and we'll put one in your hand. Um, but, but we designed this book to help you get the most out of this study um, so that uh, you, you, it encourages you to get into the Scripture before the sermon ever happens. It gives you a space to take notes during the sermon, and then it gives you discussion questions afterwards to help you move into community and talk about what you're learning uh, with others. And uh, there's a section as well for devotional prayer uh, so that each week you're not just interacting with information, but you are in fact uh, engaging your heart and interacting with the God of that information. And so we would encourage you to uh, dig in and follow along. For those of you that are, are like diligent rule keepers, I know you hate it when I do this, and I apologize, but it's life. Um, uh, in, your, in your study book, it says that we're actually doing Luke. Don't panic. Don't. We're doing Matthew. It's a parallel passage. I just decided to, to take the story out of Matthew instead of Luke. You can take, take your notes on the same page, okay? You don't, you don't need to have a meltdown. It's okay, okay? For those of you who are not rule keepers, you're wondering what in the world I'm talking about. I'm just saving myself some emails, okay? So... Um, so, you know, go ahead and take your notes in there. Um, so when my kids were little, they're not anymore, they are, they are all grown up, uh, but when they were little, I always hated it when I would go to like the grocery store or, or even by the pet store and there was somebody out front or there was a big sign that said free dogs. Um, if, if, if you have ever encountered that as a parent, I think you probably know exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about, right? My kids love dogs. And, and they should. I love dogs, right? They, they got their love for these large furry animals from, from me. I love, and I especially love large dogs. So my kids have, uh, they just gravitate toward the bigger the better, right? Labradors are our thing, um, but Weimaraners uh, and even, you know, Great Danes, and I mean, they just, the bigger the better. And the problem, though, is as, as a, a, a parent with a bunch of young kids, you know, you're trying to herd your posse into the store and, and, and keep everybody all the ducks in a row. You're trying not to lose any along the way. And, and as you're coming in, you know, it's, it's can, I, can, I, can I look? Can I look? Can I look? Can I look? Can I, can, I, can I look? Can I look? All right. All right. You can look. Can I, can I, can I touch? Can I touch? Can I touch? Can I, can I touch? Can I pet him? Can I pet him? All right. All right. Can I, can I have? Can I have? Can I have? Can I, ha- can I? No. No, but they're free. That's always where it goes. But they're free, right? There's no greater villain in any story than a parent who turns down a free dog, right? In that moment, you are the worst ogre that has ever walked the face of the earth. Who turns down a free dog? I dare you to try to explain to your kids in that moment that there ain't nothing in this life free, right? To to look at them and say, yeah, it's free, but it's not free right? The, the free dog has to have shots. The free dog has to have food. The free dog has to have walks, right? It's going to cost time and money and sanity, right? I, I still have two dogs that uh, I have to walk every night. They were my kids' dogs. Uh, I've counted, I think we're at about eight over the years, so you can tell I'm not very good at saying no. 
Um, we've had we've had many of them, and and uh, I will be out late this evening walking my dogs again. Um, I feed them every day, right? Why do I do this? I do this because I love, not not because I love my dogs. I like my dogs. I love my kids, right? I love my kids, and and I I got a real kick out of seeing my kids, and I still get a kick out of my kids and how much they love these dogs. Um, guys, that's, that's a lot like grace. It's a lot like grace, where we're going this morning. Um, here's the thing. We love grace because it's free, right? It's God's unconditional, unbounded, limitless love for us, right? The message of the gospel is good news, that the God of the universe, whom we have offended in our sin, whom we have betrayed in our rebellion, whom we have misrepresented in the puffing up of ourselves and the minimizing of His glory, whom, whom we have offended, right? We carry guilt against God and shame in our behavior. Man, He just loves us. He just loves us, and He invites us in. There is a continual invitation of grace, right? It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what you've done this morning. It doesn't matter what shame you bear, what guilt you carry. It doesn't matter. The invitation of love is universal and endless. You cannot sin your way outside of the love of God. You cannot go so far that God's love doesn't reach and follow. That's one of the messages of the book of Jonah, right? You can't outrun the love of God. We love that message of grace. It is free, unconditional, limitless. But that doesn't mean it didn't cost. It just didn't cost us, right? God's grace is costly. It cost God everything. He's the one that foot the bill. It's free for us, but only because He took it upon Himself to pay the price we couldn't pay. Now, here's the challenge with grace for us. Because it's free, we tend to minimize its value. Because we know it is boundless and limitless and, and always there, we, we tend to see it not just as free, but honestly, we tend to see it as cheap. It's easy. We can always count on it. And what ends up happening as a result is we end up valuing it less, even though it is the most valuable thing in the universe. There's a danger that we will take grace for granted. So in order to appreciate grace, we have to appreciate the cost that was paid to make it free. And that's, I think, the lesson for us this morning. So let's take a look at Jonah 1, um, and then we're going to look over in Matthew 12. Uh, In Jonah 1, we're only going to read one verse, verse 17. It's the end of the story, this story we've been sitting in for the last several weeks. Just to remind you, Jonah was a prophet of Yahweh, the Most High God, and God showed up one day and said, Arise, go to Nineveh, and proclaim to them that I noticed their sin and I'm really upset, and, um, you know, that they might repent. And, And Jonah arose and went the opposite direction. Instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, he went 500 miles west, tried to find the farthest place he could go across the sea to a place called Tarshish, uh, trying to flee the presence of the Lord. And of course, that was foolish because you can't flee the presence of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And uh, out in the middle of the sea, God reminded him of that by raising up a giant storm that almost destroyed the ship. Uh, The Phoenician sailors were in a panic. They cast lots and discovered that it was, in fact, Jonah who was fleeing from God that brought this uh, calamity upon them. And so, uh, despite their best efforts, Despite their nobility and their heroic efforts to try to deliver Jonah into God's judgment in a way that they didn't have to do something um, that they considered evil, they ended up having to cast him off the ship into the sea because it was the only option God gave them. The sea immediately calmed down. Um, But Jonah was in a pickle, right? And uh, that's where verse 17 picks up. Taking a look at 117, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, flip over to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. And he here, by the way, is Jesus, not Jonah, just just in case you follow along. We're now Jonah's long gone. Uh, Jesus said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, today we come to the most famous and really the most controversial uh, portion of this entire story, right? It is Jonah and the whale. That is how it's commonly referred to, right? Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the great fish. And so we're going to deal with the first and most important question first. What swallowed him, right? Was it a whale or wasn't it, right? Uh, Well, the Hebrew word here literally just means great sea creature, okay? Any large great sea creature. It doesn't delineate scientifically between mammals and fish, right? It doesn't doesn't give us any help at all. It's just something really big that lives in in the sea, right? And, And the Greek word that Jesus uses is the same. It just means a large sea creature. Now, in 1611, when they translated the King James Bible, Uh, Those translators chose to translate it as whale, a very specific large sea creature, which is why we now always hear the story of Jonah and the whale. It is because that translation chose to make it whale. The word itself just means a large sea creature. It could mean anything uh, that was of great size that lived in, in the ocean. And there's been all kinds of speculation about what lives in the sea that could have swallowed Jonah, that, that would have equipped him to survive for three days uh, in, in its belly as, as it carried the reluctant prophet from out in the middle of the sea all the way back to the shore so that he could travel to Nineveh, right? Some people have postulated that it, it could have been the sperm whale. The sperm whale is the, the largest of the toothed whales. It is the largest predator in the ocean. And, and it is possible that a, a sperm whale, in fact, could swallow a human, right? It, it's, it, it, it could happen. Uh, the problem is you're going to find yourself in the first of four stomachs. And, and in that first stomach, it's filled with acid and methane gas, and it's designed simply to dissolve you so that when you go to the next stomach, uh, where it grinds you up, um, you're, you're already pretty soft. And so that would be a pretty miserable place to spend three days, um, not hospitable much to life, but, you know, uh, possible. Some people think it's the whale shark. The whale shark is not a whale. It is a shark, um, but it has a huge mouth, right? Its mouth can be up to five feet wide, and, and, and people look at that and think, man, that totally could swallow a human. The problem is that the esophagus is only five inches uh, across, so the whale shark's out um, unless it just had an abnormally large esophagus. Um, I personally think it was uh, what is commonly known as the Meg, right? Some of you saw that great movie this summer, one of the best films ever made on the face of the earth. Kidding. Um, scientifically known as the Carcharodon Megalodon, it is the extinct great white shark. Uh, it is the great white on steroids. It's like five times as large. And if the movie is accurate, the great white, the, the Megalodon could in fact change its size at any given time. One time it's just big enough to swallow a human, the next time it's actually swallow, big enough to swallow a ship, right? So maybe the Megalodon could, could morph its size um, and, and swallow a human. All right, here's the thing. I, I highly recommend you don't do this. Uh, go online and, um, and, and try to find the answer to this question because you will find uh, just a cacophony of ignorance. Um, there are all kinds of arguments about what kind of fish could swallow Jonah and, and whether it's even possible. And you're going to, you know, some people are like, historically it happened, this sailor fell in and the sperm whale swallowed him and two days later we pulled him out and he was insane, but he was still alive. And, and, um, and of course, the story is of really dubious origins. Um, I seriously doubt that happened. Uh, um, I, I, it's not a good way to go. Um, some people are trying to prove it. Some people are trying to mock it. Here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. The text when you read the text, the text assumes that this is a miraculous intervention by God. That it's a miraculous intervention by God. What that means is that we're not talking about a rare but naturally occurring phenomenon. Right? We're not talking about something that could happen but would be really, really rare. What we're talking about is a miracle. When a supernatural God exercises a power over the natural order. Right? In the same way Jesus could walk through walls and was raised from the dead. And here's the thing. You, you either believe that God can overrule the natural laws of the universe, 
or you don't, right? You believe there is a God and that He is real, that He is powerful, and that, that He made the natural laws of the universe, and He can overrule them as an exercise of His will or, or, or not, right? You either believe that it could happen, and if you believe it could happen, it's not that hard to believe that it did happen, right? When the Word of God tells us that, that this is what the supernatural God decided to do in this moment, it's like, could God do that? Yeah, I suppose He could, right? He could create an air pocket in the, the stomach of a sperm whale. It might have been really uncomfortable for the whale. It might have even killed him. I don't know, but, but it, is it possible? Yeah, I suppose it's possible, right? He, he could do anything, right? But if you don't believe in a God who is real and active, there's really no amount of natural evidence I can give you that's going to convince you, right? So I think that's actually a waste of time. It is either a miraculous God performing a miracle or, or we're kind of done with the conversation, which is fine, right? Um, I just think it's a waste of time to try to, to come up with natural examples. Um, now, here's the thing. This is actually very similar. This conversation, this tension is actually very, very similar to where Jesus found himself in Matthew 12. When Matthew 12 is confronting the Pharisees, he is dealing with people who, who honestly just don't want to believe uh, that he is who he said he was, right? So in Matthew 12, we begin with, with the Pharisees and the scribes coming up, and it seems very, very polite when you read it just in this paragraph. They walk up and they're like, hey, will, will you show us a sign to show to us who you are? It seems like such a reasonable request, and Jesus' response seems a little harsh. He's like, you wicked and adulterous generation. What are you doing asking me for a sign? Uh, okay, so understand the broader context. Um, Jesus has already been performing miracles, right? Jesus has already been healing the sick. Jesus has already been calming the storm. In fact, he has been so active that his detractors, the same people that are now asking him for a sign, had already had to come up with an explanation for his power because people were coming to the Pharisees as the religious leaders of the day and saying to them, all right, this Jesus is doing incredible things, right? How do you explain it? If he's not the Messiah, if he is not the anointed one, the hero that God has promised throughout biblical history, if he's not that person, how do you explain his power? And the Pharisees came up with an ingenious explanation. They said, well, maybe he's casting out demons by the power of demons. Maybe his power comes from Beelzebub. Beelzebub literally means Lord of the Flies. So maybe he's casting out the flies by the power of the Lord of the flies. Maybe he is fixing these demonic problems by being empowered demonically. So their explanation to explain his miraculous power was to make it something evil instead of something good, even though it was obviously good. They, they didn't want to believe. Right? Here's, the, here's the bottom line. Jesus was coming in and he threatened their power structures. Jesus was coming in and he was threatening what they thought made them significant. Jesus came in and he threatened what, what they thought made them important and, and comfortable and secure. Right? They had, they had carved out their place in the world and, and what made them secure was their religious performance, their, their morality, their, their, the way they impressed their neighbors, the way they were held in high esteem. And Jesus shows up and basically says, none of that is worth anything. You need grace. You, you need grace. And I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to come in and honor your power structures because they're, they're evil at their core. They're designed to glorify you and rob God of His glory, to make you feel significant outside of the significance of God, to make you feel secure outside of dependence, humble dependence on God. I'm, I'm not going to bless that. And the Pharisees found that absolutely revolting. There was no way they were going to give up what they had worked so hard to attain, their, their high standing and culture, their position of significance, their, their high morality, um, their ability to feel superior to others, and the admiration they felt from others when they walked down the street. So they didn't want to believe. So now they're showing up and they're demanding a sign, which is really, really crazy because it's, think about it. You know, it's, like, it's like they're like, yeah, 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 we know. We know you restored Akeem's sight. We know it, right? He was blind, now he sees. Impressive, very nice, right? Yeah, we know, we know that you, you cleansed Alejandro's leprosy. We know it, right? He was a leper and now he's not, right? Impressive, nice. Yeah, and we know, we know that you fixed Jamal's stunted leg. That was really impressive, right? We're all kind of amazed. We get it, you do miracles. But show us a sign, we need a sign. If we're going to believe you, we, we need a sign. Let me ask you something. What sign could Jesus have shown them that would have convinced them? What sign could Jesus have shown them that they would not have found a way to explain away, 
to try to come up with some alternate explanation that actually made Jesus evil and the bad guy. There's really nothing. Right? There's a quote in your bulletin. I'm going to put it on the screen from Blaise Pascal. He said, In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. There's enough light for those who want to believe and there's enough shadows for those who don't. The issue here wasn't one of revelation. The issue here wasn't one of it being believable or not believable or being, being intellectually uh, uh, having integrity or, or being, you know, it, that wasn't the issue at all. The real issue was one of desire. They didn't want it to be true. They didn't want it to be true. Jesus knew there was no sign he could show them that would make them believe what they did not want to believe. They had already decided. And as a result, whatever they saw was going to be interpreted through that. So instead of giving them a sign, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that thing, you wicked and adulterous generation, you bunch of harlots, not going to do it. Instead, he gives them the sign of Jonah, right? Instead of pointing them forward to a sign he will show, he points them back to something they claim to believe. As, as faithful Jews in, in, in the covenant relationship with God, having been thoroughly instructed in uh, what we call the Old Testament, what they would have called the Torah, the, the law and the prophets, um, they knew the story of Jonah. He's like, you want a sign? You want a sign? Jonah already gave it to you. He says this, he says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. All right, so there are three things that I think we can take away uh, from this sign, uh, three things that I think are, are going to help us understand potentially what he was saying to them and, and what he is saying to us. The first is that God has never taken off guard. God has never taken off guard. Um, so, implied in what Jesus is saying is that nothing that happened to Jonah took God by surprise. Nothing that happened to Jonah was an accident. Jesus says that what happened to Jonah was a sign. What happened to Jonah was a message from God to future generations. What happened to Jonah was a foreshadowing of Jesus. What that means is that God was active, right? That means that from God's perspective, Jonah's story was an intentional message to us. It wasn't simply an account of some random events. It was, in fact, a message. See, when Jesus calls it a sign, what that means is that it was deliberate. This isn't just a random sequence of events. This isn't just, uh, oh, these things happened. God designed this. It is deliberate. It is intentional. That's what a sign is, right? You don't, you don't accidentally trip over a curb um, on the way home, almost drop all your groceries, get inside, and, and then an hour later say to your kids, I did that as a sign to you to show you to be careful, right? No, you're just clumsy, right? And it might be a good example of clumsiness. Thank you for that. But it's not a sign. A sign has to be deliberate. A sign has to be intentional. A sign has to be planned. A sign isn't looking back and saying, oh, that thing was a sign. No, that was just you being dumb. Um, a sign has to be designed. And, and so what this means is that God actually designed the events around Jonah intentionally. For all of Jonah's resentment, for all of Jonah's rebellion, for all of Jonah's running, he never took one step outside of God's plan. God knew what He would do before He did it. And He orchestrated it to tell a story that Jonah had no idea he was part of. Here's the thing, you guys, and this is, this is why this is important. We all think we're living our own stories, making our own choices, and we are, right? We get up, you decided what to wear today, you can't blame that on anybody else. You decided on what to eat this morning. You, you're going to decide on where to go to lunch. You decide morally what choices you're going to make today, who you're going to value and who you're going to devalue, who you're going to love and who you're going to reject. You're going to make choices about what you're going to say and what you're not going to say, what you will express and what you hold back. You will make those choices. And they are your choices to make, and you are responsible for those choices. You will reap the benefit of those choices, or you will suffer the condemnation of those choices. They are your choices to make. You are living out your story, but God is above your story. God works His will through our will. 
We make our choices. We do what we will do. But God has never taken off guard. And God is weaving together all of the human stories to tell one great story of redemption and restoration. God is weaving all of these stories, even the bad stuff in them, together into one great story of redemption and restoration. He has never taken off guard. He is never surprised. See, he used, God, he used Jonah's rebellion for his glory, even as Jonah was trying to rob him of his glory. And so he appointed a great fish to swallow him. That means that the fish wasn't just randomly there. This didn't just, oh, hey, there's a fish. That's handy. Why don't you swallow him? No, he appointed a fish to be there. God knew this was going to happen. He arranged for the fish to be there at the exact moment in the exact place the sailors would finally throw him overboard, right? And, and the fish swallowed him because it was part of God's plan. He did this so that he could prefigure Christ. He did this so that by being swallowed by a fish and spending three days in that slimy belly, possibly getting bleached by the stomach acid, pretty nasty, he would foreshadow Jesus spending his time in the grave, being buried in the earth. It wasn't by accident. It was appointed. A couple things that are important to us for that. First of all, bad things happen, right? Bad things happen in our lives. Sometimes bad things happen because we're dumb and we make choices that we shouldn't have made, and bad things happen. Sometimes bad things happen because other people are dumb, and they make choices they shouldn't have made, and we suffer the results. Sometimes bad things happen because random circumstances in life that are unpredictable and just seem completely random result in, in something that is bad. Okay, so I, I have something really, really hard to say. God allows bad things to happen. Now, it's a hard thing to say, but I think it's something you already know. Because if God didn't allow bad things to happen, they wouldn't happen. They do happen. God allows them to happen, and God is orchestrating all of these things, even the bad things, according to His plan. Now, this leads us to a personal dilemma, because anytime you talk about suffering, you're no longer talking about just ideas. You're talking about life. There's not a person in this room that hasn't suffered. Suffering is always personal. When we talk about bad things happening, I know some of you have had bad things happen. Some, things, some of you are having bad things happen right now, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God allowed that? God allowed that? And that leads us ultimately to, to a place where we have to wrestle. Is God really good? Because that was really bad. And he allowed it to happen. Is God really good? And if he's good, is he really in control? Because how can he be good and in control and allow that to happen? How can God be good and in control and allow that to happen? I'll take you back to the quote from C.S. Lewis that I opened this sermon series with. Uh, it comes from the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Susan is getting ready to meet Aslan, the great lion who sang Narnia into existence and, and, and symbolically represents Jesus. Um, she hears that Aslan is a lion, and she's scared, and she's like, wait, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen, God's not safe, but he is good. What does that even mean? Well, let me quote Joni Erickson Tata. Joni Erickson Tata was um, a young woman who was athletic and had all of her life ahead of her, um, was intelligent and talented, and in her late teens went for a swim and dove into the water. And uh, there was something under the water and it broke her neck. And she spent the rest of her life as a quadriplegic. And she has had many, many, many hours of suffering to contemplate what had happened. What would happen if I would have just dove into the water two feet over. What, what if I would have just made that dive with a little bit more angle? What if, 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 what if? Bad things happen. And this is what Joni said. Joni Erickson Tata says that God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
a profound thought, especially from somebody who has suffered so much. God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Listen to me, not everything that happens to you is good. And I would never want you to hear that. Not everything that happens to you is good, nor, nor are you asked to say that it is good. Right? Bad things happen. And they are bad. But that doesn't mean God doesn't use bad things in the end for good reasons and ends. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good, not our personal good in the moment, not our personal pleasure in the moment, but for the good, the greater good, the ultimate good of, of God's redeeming and restoring. God works all things. How many things? All things. God works all things together for the good, for those who love God, for those that are called according to His purpose. That, that, what that tells us is God isn't safe, but He is good. God is going to work everything together, and there will come a day where you will be able to see how your story is woven into the greater story, just like Jonah at one point was able to look back at his suffering. Right? When he was thrown into the, the water, that was a bad day. Right? And he's thinking, okay, at least now I get to die. And then he gets swallowed by a fish. A bad day just got worse. Are you kidding me? I'm going to have a slow death in here? Right? But there came a day where Jonah was able to look back and see where his suffering fit into the greater plan of God's good, that there was, in fact, a purpose for that suffering, both for his good And for ours, there came a point at which he was able to give thanks, even for his pain. Because God, who is greater than our stories, is at work in our stories to redeem our stories, to redeem and to restore. Not everything that happens to you is good, but God will use it for good. Because God is the God over the storm. No storm takes him off guard, and no storm comes by accident. God is the God over the storm, and you can trust Him because He's not only the God over the storm, He's the God waiting for you on the other side of the storm. He's the one, He's not taken off guard. All of the chaos that is around you that is so confusing, you have no idea how you're going to unravel it. You don't need, He's already unraveled it. He's already waiting for you on the other side of the storm. God is not waiting to discover your future with you. He's already there waiting for you. And what that means is that we can have confidence in God even when life doesn't make sense. Jesus could have confidence in God even though he was actually speaking to the very people who were going to deliver him up to the world's powers to be crucified. The Pharisees so hated him that they were going to contrive and figure out a way to have him killed. In that moment, he knew that as they're standing there asking him for a sign. So the first thing we see is Jesus saying, nothing is random. God's in control then and now. The second thing he is saying is, is essentially this. He's saying to the Pharisees, hey, y'all want to understand me? And he's saying to us, you want to understand? Look back to Jonah, right? Look back to Jonah to understand Jesus, right? Because Jesus was the better Jonah. Jesus was the better Jonah. Jonah foreshadowed Jesus. He's saying, I am the true and better Jonah, right? Jonah is a prophet, Right? You've studied him, you Pharisees. You've studied him in your sacred scriptures from your youth. I am the true and better Jonah, the one that Jonah was foreshadowing, the one that Jonah was pointing toward. I love the complexity of scripture, um, and I love the rich literature that we find. We've already discussed that Jonah is a story rich in irony, and in fact, the message of Jonah is found in the tension of the irony. The message of Jonah isn't what God God's revelation to Jonah, right? God's revelation to Jonah was just go to Nineveh and tell them I've noticed their sin and they need to repent, right? That, that, that was contained in one sentence and it's almost irrelevant to us today. The, the message of Jonah isn't in the revelation of God to Jonah, but in the revelation of God through Jonah's story. The, the, the truth of Jonah comes to us in the tension of the irony, right? Between what Jonah was supposed to do and what he actually did. Between what... what Um, what appears to be going on in his story and what is actually going on between between what Jonah tried to do and what God is actually doing, right? The the message of Jonah is found in the tension of the journey. So it's not surprising that the sign of Jonah works the same way. When when we look to discover what Jonah tells us about Jesus, it, it is revealed to us in the tension of the irony 
between these two, right? Jonah was swallowed by a fish to rescue him from death. Jesus was swallowed by the grave to rescue us from death. Jonah was was swallowed because he was trying to run from God's mission of love. God wanted to, to share his love with the Assyrians, and Jonah wasn't on board with that. They don't deserve it, right? So he was running from God's mission of love, and he didn't care who suffered in the process. He didn't care who suffered because of his lack of faithfulness. Jesus was swallowed because he was, he was the hero of God's mission, because he was running toward God's mission of love. He was, he was determined not to run from suffering, but to embrace suffering, to actually run into the heart of the storm, not away from it, because he was going to be a hero that would deliver us from the storm of sin, the storm of our own making, because of love, right? Jonah was swallowed because he was a traitor to God in need of rescue. Jesus was swallowed because he was a faithful hero who came to ultimately rescue us from the consequences of our cosmic treason. Jonah was protected from his rebellion because God appointed a great fish to swallow him, and Jesus was swallowed by our rebellion because God appointed a cross to crucify him. Jonah was spit up on the shore because God wanted the reluctant prophet to to give the message of deliverance to the great city of Nineveh. Jesus wasn't spit up on the shore by a willing fish, he instead had to kill death and split the grave open. And when he did, our eager hero came forth sharing a message that the God of the universe has already accomplished what is necessary to redeem and restore all of creation. Not just offering you forgiveness, not just offering you personal grace, but he has undone the cosmic treason that had undone the shalom of God. He, he has started the process of redemption and restoration of all things. Jonah, Jonah needed everyone else to pay the price for his rebellion, right? The sailors who had their lives risked because he, he chartered their boat, the, the great fish that I'm sure was very uncomfortable for three days with him in its belly. Even at the end, there's a plant you're going to see. Even at the end, there's a plant that has to die for Jonah. Okay, um, he, he requires everyone else to pay the price for his rebellion. Jesus showed up to pay the price of our rebellion. To pay the price so that we could receive free grace. Free, unconditional, unlimited, never-ending, never-fading love. It's ours. Free. Because he suffered the cost of our sin. You think it would take a miracle for a fish to swallow Jonah? You'd be right, that would take a miracle. But that's nothing compared to the miracle of what happened on the cross and in the grave and in the resurrection. Right? Even, even, even the resurrection of the dead, that miracle pales in comparison to what took place on the cross because on the cross what God did was He settled for all of eternity the cosmic treason of His creatures against Him. He He arranged for the price to be paid, just not by us. Our hero went to the cross and paid the price we could never pay so that we could receive a benefit we could never earn. He became our substitute in judgment. He was our hero and died in our place. And in dying in our place, he undid what had been undone by our sin. That's the greater miracle. Jesus was the true and better Jonah. Jonah was just a sign. Jonah was just a foreshadowing. So there's one last lesson for us here, and that's this. There's only one good guy in this story. There's only one good guy in this story. Um, Jesus doesn't just talk about Jonah being a sign, right? He talks about Jonah being in the fish for three days and three nights. talks about him being buried in the earth for three days. Um, But right after that, he talks about Nineveh. He says, look, at the last judgment, you Pharisees, you generation, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, the people that, are, that, are, that were despised, the people that filleted people alive, they were known for their violence, they were known for their, for their inhumanity, they were known for their wickedness, they were known, I mean, just some of the most deplorable people on the face of the earth. Those Assyrians are going to arise at the last day because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And they're going to condemn you because you didn't repent, even though someone greater than Jonah is here. The true and better Jonah has arrived. Nineveh will arise. And that generation will condemn you for your lack of faith. All right, so I know this is a bit of a spoiler alert. I'm giving away some of the, some of the story of Jonah that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, Jonah will, in fact, go to Nineveh, right? We haven't gotten there yet, but he will. And, and when he gets there, the city will repent. Sorry, uh, I know I'm giving away part of the story. Uh, but that's going to happen. And when the city rep- repents, they, they foreshadow, in a sense, they are foreshadowing um, the restoration that comes from grace, that even the Assyrians can be forgiven. Even people that far from God can be brought near by the grace of God. They received the message from a lousy prophet a lousy prophet, and the Pharisees wouldn't receive it from the sun. Jonah was a flawed vessel, but the Assyrians responded, the one who is better than Jonah is here. All right, so, so let, me, let me talk about what this means. Um, Jonah. Jonah looked at the world as being made up of three groups. The Pharisees looked at the world as being made up of three groups. There's God. He's in a group by himself, right? He's three in one. <laughs> he, he has a class to himself. Nobody else gets to be in the group with God. There's God, right? And then there's us. We're the followers of God, the covenant people of God. We're the good guys, right? We're the ones that are doing our best to follow God. We're the ones doing our best. We go to church. We try to be moral. We try to fight for things that we think God wants us to fight for. We, we try to stand up for truth, and we try to be a testimony of justice, right? We're the good guys, and then there's the bad guys, and the bad guys are all those people that are working against God. There are all those people out there that, that are on the other side of God. There are all the people out there that we don't agree with, that we don't like. For Jonah, that was the Assyrians. They were the bad guys. They didn't deserve grace, which implied he did. For, for, for the Pharisees, it was all the Gentile nations, the wicked, evil, vile Gentiles. They're out there. The wicked, disgusting, vile Gentiles. The message of Jonah is this. There aren't three groups there's only two. There's God who rescues and people in need of rescue. That's it. There's only one good guy in this story, and it's not Jonah, and it's not the Pharisees. It is God, right? God in the story of Jonah, Jesus in the story of the New Testament. There is only one good guy in the story, and it's not us, and it's not our political party, and it's not our political platform, and it's not our social agenda, and it's not our our group of conservatives or our group of progressives that are so much better than that other group. We There are not three groups, God, the good guys, and the bad guys, because as soon as you make that structure, what you are implying is that somehow you deserve grace and they don't. That there is a God who gives grace, and somehow we deserve that grace, and they don't. And as soon as you create three groups in your mind, you, you undercut the work of grace in your own heart. You devalue grace. And you start undercutting the mission of God. As you're trying to undercut those people you think don't deserve grace, those people that should be defeated, those people that are evil and vile and, and, and they're the bad guys, as, as you're working against them, you are working against God because there's only two groups. God who rescues and those in need of rescue. Jonah tried to undercut the grace of God by trying to defend the honor of God. He didn't want the Assyrians to repent. The, the, the Pharisees were undercutting the glory of God by actually working against God. And I would say we have the same problem today. There are not three groups. There are two. And when we see that, when we see that, when we see that, that there's only God in one group and wicked, selfish rebels, sinners in need of forgiveness and grace in the other group, man, that, that's a dagger to our pride. And it is a balm to our shame. When we see that, that it's not just them that needs a Savior, I need a Savior, that I don't deserve grace any more than they do because grace cannot be deserved or earned. It only comes as a free gift to those who recognize their unworthiness for it. They come in humility and in dependence on the God who saves. That He's not just the hero the world needs, He's the hero I need. 
That's when I actually start following the path of Jesus instead of the path of Jonah. That's the path of actually starting to appreciate costly grace. Right? When we realize, I was so bad that Jesus, the Son of God, had to die for me. Me. But I was so loved that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. What joy? My redemption and my restoration. I was that bad, I was that loved. That will fill me with a humble confidence, not an abrasive arrogance. That will fill me with a humility that allows me to love even the Assyrians, even the Pharisees. And, or maybe because, I love the God who loves me. That will humble us and that will lift us up. So Jonah was buried for in, in the sea for three days, and that foreshadowed Jesus' dying and, and being buried and then rising again. Uh, Jonah looked forward to that event. Jonah foreshadowed that event. Today we look back at that event, right? We have the unique privilege of living in the point in history where we get to look back at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We get to see the hero of the story and, and how God actually worked um, through that process. And, and people are invited today, just like the Ninevites were back then, to believe. And I want to put the invitation out again this morning, right? That the invitation is universal, and it is, uh, it, it is, it is uh, ever-present, right? Belief. That's what's required. How do you gain the benefit of grace? You believe in the hero who gives it. What does it mean to believe? It means to, that God is initiated toward you in love, and you respond to that love by trusting Him in response. I trust His salvation project more than I trust my own. His, I, trust, I trust His work more than my own. I, I trust Him to deliver me, not, not my significance or my importance or my intellect or my humor or people, what people think of me or how much money I have in the bank. Or I, I'm, I'm, I leave aside my self-salvation projects, and I trust in His. Why? Because He loved me. And His love undoes my pride, and His love undoes my fear. And, and being undone by grace, I respond to that grace with faith, belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be delivered. You shall be saved. You shall be made new. Your sin will be left on the cross. Your guilt and your shame will be removed, and you will be covered with the very dignity and righteousness and glory of Christ by grace. That same invitation is before you this morning. And the first thing that you're supposed to do as a believer in obedience to that faith is to be baptized. Jesus said, believe and be baptized, right? It is an outward sign of an inward reality. It is our way of celebrating the work of grace in our lives. Baptism, Jonah got buried in the ocean uh, in a fish for three days, very unpleasant, came out, and that foreshadowed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Today we baptize, right? The Greek word for baptize, baptizo, literally means to immerse. And so what we do is we take people and we, we stick them under the water and we hold them there, right? That symbolizes death. And if I held you there long enough, you would die, okay? But I won't. I will pull you back out, right? That, that represents your union with Christ and His resurrection, that you are now a new creature in Christ, that, that you have a new name, a new identity, a new future, a new dignity that is not defined by who you were, but, but who He is. You are not defined by what you've done. You're, you're, you're defined by who, what He has accomplished, not where you have failed, right? And so, baptism is a symbolic representation of an inner reality that you are a new creature in Christ as one who has believed in Christ. And so I want to give you an invitation this morning. If you have believed in Christ, but you have not been baptized, if you are a follower of Jesus, even if you, man, you're like this morning, it's the first time it's dawned on you, like, man, I think I believe this stuff. Let's dunk you, right? There's nothing holding us back. I'm going to ask you to do this, though. If you, if you think the Spirit is stirring you to be baptized this morning, um, go to Connection Point. Somebody will, will speak to you there and help you discern if this is the appropriate time and the appropriate response, right? We're going to walk with you through this. We might, we might come back and say, hey, you know what? Let's talk a little bit further, and we're going to set up your baptism a little bit farther out. We may say, absolutely, all guns a blazing. Let's do it today. Um, in which case you're going to be like, man, am I going home wet today? No, you're not going home wet. We've got a change of clothes for you, right? We've thought this through. We've done this enough. Um, we're prepared. We've we got clothes for you. We've got towels for you. Um, we'll even get a photographer if that's, you know, you want, you want a keepsake image. You should. Um, but but, but uh, today's your opportunity, right? Today's your opportunity. 
So if you want to be baptized, sometime between now and the end of service or even over between the two services, go to Connection Point. Someone will speak to you and help you discern if this is the uh, appropriate response for you. But, but listen, if the Spirit is stirring your heart, if you are a believer in Christ and, and you have not been baptized and the Spirit is stirring your heart, don't be like Jonah. Don't run the opposite direction. Don't do it. Respond. If the Lord is saying, arise, follow me and be baptized, arise, follow him and be baptized. Believe me, it is better to walk into anything uncomfortable with Jesus than try to walk away from it without him. Because he'll get you back there anyway. <laughs> He's not going to let you get away. All right, let me pray for us. We're going to close in a word of prayer. Um, we do have a scheduled baptism after the 1045. We don't. I'll let you know by the end of this service if we're going to be doing one between services. Um, if not, you are welcome to join us after the 1045 for a baptism celebration then. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are, man, you are a good God, which is such good news for us. Um, man, your word tells us, Hebrews 1229 tells us this is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We forget that you're God and we're not. We forget just what kind of power you have. And there are those moments where we are confronted with your power in a way that, man, it just makes us feel our mortality. It makes us feel our smallness. And in those moments, there is a holy fear that is born within us as we realize that we are not God, that we don't have control. And that you have a will that is greater than our will, and you're telling a story that is greater than our story. And in the end, we're subject to it. I am just so grateful that while your story isn't always safe to us, man, sometimes things come in that are uncomfortable. Sometimes things come in that are hard. Sometimes things that come in that we don't understand, that, that even in the, in, in the moment, may, we even resent. But you are good. You are weaving all these things together to create a beautiful tapestry of redemption and restoration. You are telling a greater story that will end in the glorious redemption of all things and restoration of your glory and our good. Lord, I pray that you will awaken within us the humble joy that is the response to that kind of incredible grace. And if there are any here this morning, Lord, who, who um, have been running from you, that you'll give them the courage and the strength to stop running. Maybe it's the step of, of, of first acknowledging their faith in you, that, that they do, in fact, believe. Maybe it is the first step of obedience in that faith, of actually being baptized. Maybe, maybe it is in some other area where they are having a hard time trusting your story and they want to tell their own. I pray, Lord, Spirit, will you awaken within us our responding trust to the outpouring of your love? Will you draw us near Awaken us to how safe we are when we go through the storm with you. And then give us the boldness of faith. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.